Thank you for joining me today. My name is Kim Harmon, and welcome to Surveying Sociology. Today we will be talking about socioeconomic status's influence on behaviors in children and adolescents in Idaho. Here with me today, I have my dear friend Sarah Zucker, who has recently received her master's degree in psychology with an emphasis in applied behavior analysis. She is currently working towards her master's level national certification through the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks. Let's go ahead and get started. I think that it's important in a podcast to make sure that we are not only having interesting conversations, but that we are also becoming more sociologically aware. So let's go ahead and start by explaining what exactly socioeconomic status and behavioral intervention is. Socioeconomic status, or you might hear it as SES, is an economic and sociological combined total measure of a person's work experience and an individual or family's economic access to resources and social position in relation to other people around them. And behavioral intervention is a use uh, of well-established principles of learning that describe how skills, behaviors can be increased or decreased depending on what happens right before and after the behavior. Um, using these rules of learning is also called behavior modification or operant conditioning. Behavioral principles are important tools for teaching any skill. All right, sweet. So, now, Sarah, thank you Hi. again for being with us today. Of course. Um, I'm so excited to talk about interesting and impactful sociological subject with you. I know as a behavioral intervention professional, you have a unique perspective on this subject that I can't wait to hear. I'm happy to be here. Oh. So, what does a behavioral therapist do? And what's the difference between a behavioral therapist and a behavioral analyst? analyst. So here in Idaho, we have um, specialized titles for people who work in behavior. Idaho doesn't really fall under the BACB or the Behavior Analyst Certification Board's general rules. Um, not that we can't, but we have state-specific titles. So Behavioral therapists in Idaho work one-on-one -on -one with individuals with developmental disability or measurable developmental deficits. Um, specifically, we address in a, or we assist with addressing behavioral deficits in adaptive behaviors um, to help the individual access um, the community, the school, family time reinforcement better. Um, the difference between a BI and an ABA therapist in Idaho is really, it's, it's a certificate or it's a, um, qualification certification based. They are different when you talk about billing insurance, ABA therapy falls under the jurisdiction of the BACB or the behavior analyst certification board and is often billed through private insurance. And the BACB does have a certification structure based on education level and test assessment, all of that. Um, Idaho State specifically has their own certifications. So um, you'll hear intervention professional, intervention specialist, and intervention tech. These are also education level based. However, they are state specific. 
and they do not carry the same weight as the BACD certifications. Technically, in Idaho, our services are ABA-informed, but are not strictly ABA, which expands the ability of hours and behaviors we can work on, but also limits who we can bill through. Gotcha. All right. So are there different forms of employment for practitioners? So in Idaho, if you want to work in behavioral intervention, there's a couple different places you can work. You can work in either clinics or you can work as an independent provider. Um, Either way, you can be either certified through the BACB or Idaho State, and there are different supervision requirements for each. Um, But depending on the families you work with, they can choose to have their budget, their family budget for the child's needs gone through a clinic or independent, and that kind of affects how many hours or what services you can access. That makes sense. As a parent of a specialty child like myself, yeah, totally seen both of those. Yes. <laughs> so totally it's, get it. it's really up to the families as to where they want their budget. And then from that, it depends what providers are available. That makes total sense. So I've heard of the ABCs of behavior. Can you help us with that? Like eliminate or not eliminate, illuminate. There you go. Illuminate on what those ABCs are. Happily. So the ABCs of behavior is what we call the um, the three-factor behavioral assessment. So you've got your antecedent, your behavior, and your consequence. Antecedent is, in this structure, anything that comes before or is in the setting. So anything that comes before a behavior can be a prompt. It can be how the kiddo is feeling that day. It can be the weather, it can be anything that affects the behavior that comes before the behavior. The behavior is the specific behavior. Um, Consequence in this description is anything that comes after behavior. Often when people hear consequence, they think a negative thing that, you know, to decrease behavior. But in the ABA world, in behavior intervention, consequences anything that comes after it can be something reinforcing it can be something that de- like reinforcing reinforcers would increase behavior punishers would decrease behavior but both of them are consequences of a behavior when you're looking at the three factor analysis right and that that brings up a very interesting point is i think that the in our world right now today the word consequence itself has a, a negative, negative connotation yeah. on it. So you would think a consequence would be a negative behavior. Exactly. But it could also be the consequence of a positive behavior. Exactly. Yeah. Like a reward or right. um, in behavior, when we're talking about behavior and consequence, there's both positive and negative reinforcers and positive and negative punishers. Reinforcers obviously are anything that increase behavior. Punishers are anything that decrease behavior. And the positive and negative in that sense is if you're adding or taking away from the environment. Right. So you could have a added aspect that would increase behavior, which would be a positive reinforcer. Like I give you a reward. A negative reinforcer would be often it's the, the removal of a negative stimuli or right. an aversive stimuli. So um, I was working with a kid who didn't like the buzzing of the fans. 
so he could work towards turning off the fans or something like that. Like just off the top of my head, he was he was learning to tolerate the fans. Right. Um, but that in and of itself ultimately was an aversive. So he could work towards um, removing that aversive stimuli and it reinforces the behavior, increases the behavior. Right. And I bet giving him that power over it exactly also really helps modify yes. that behavior as well. Yeah. So you can also yeah. have, when you're talking about punishers, you can add a punishment or you can take away a reinforcer or something in the environment that is reinforcing to the individual as a punisher. And that's where you look at positive and negative punishers. And I bet age range has a lot to do with figuring out how do we figure out which behaviors we're modifying and exactly. how to go about it. Exactly. So what age ranges have you yourself um, been a, a part of? So I am currently under Idaho State's um, my certification is in Idaho State specific. I'm an intervention professional. That is the master's level certification in Idaho State. And I am qualified to work with children from age three to age 21. Um, it was to 18, but we were struggling to get our 18 year olds transition to adult services. So there is a overlap between child and adolescent services and adult services. And if you're qualified for children's or if you're qualified for adults, um, the 18 to 21 range is covered in both. I personally have worked with kids from age three up through age. I think the oldest one I had was a 17 year old. Right now, my caseload is from four to about 13. So there are specialized individuals for, for each age group. Yes. So yes. you can't have someone that certifies for all age groups? Um, the BACB does that. Okay. Idaho State does specialize more as to what your education kind of prepares you for. Gotcha. So there are classes, like I have a undergraduate um, bachelor's of science in psychology, and I still had to take, I think, two classes to get my intervention specialist qualification um and the qualifications are age specific okay so because I work at a children's center I chose the 3 to 21 specialization as opposed to the older adult services now that is not to say that in Idaho adult services are not lacking we do need adult providers but yeah. that is a whole different conversation right. that is more of a transitional conversation. exactly exactly right. and it's yeah I think everyone everywhere is struggling for providers right now but Idaho is not exempt from that that makes sense so how long have you personally worked with children and adolescents in Idaho so Idaho, I have worked Solely in the field for six years. Um, before that, I was able to work. I had the opportunity to work in a daycare while I was in my undergraduate degree. And we were a lower income um, daycare where a lot of our kids actually left us going to school and then qualifying for services later. And they still had, they still qualified for the diagnosis when they were with us. And you could like hindsight's twenty twenty, but um, so I was able to count some of those hours, but in the field specifically for six years, six, 
six and a half years now. Oh, wow. And have you worked in any other states? No, I have not. Oh. So I have, I started at the agency I am at. I've been at the same agency during this whole time. Um, I started soon after graduation. Okay. And then where does Idaho seem to fall with ABA services? So again, we're ABA informed services, <laughs> according to the state. They are very picky, uh, finicky on that. <laughs> um, but from what I've seen, from what I've heard from the families I've worked with, um, we tend to have a greater access to number of hours for children um, and adolescents. But our education requirements aren't as strict as the BACD requires. So not to say that our education requirements are less, but the supervision requirements, the testing requirements, things like that, um, that allow the certifications to cross state lines are different because we our services are not structured in the same way as a lot of other states. But it allows our families to get a lot more services generally. Do you think that that's a money-saving technique? Or um, do you think that that's maybe more to try and get more services for as many as they can? Ideally, I think it's, I would hope it's to get more services for as many as we can. Um, I'm not sure how much money they actually save. Because in a lot of other states, like when I was going through my master's program, I heard from a lot of classmates that were in other states that are BACD kind of regulated more so that once kids went to school, they no longer qualified for outside of school services. Um, a lot of our kids, like I've got kids on my caseload right now that qualify for a one-on-one -on -one all day during the school day. And then they also qualify for outside of school hours. And that is completely unheard of, like, in other states. I was talking about my experiences in classes, and, and my classmates were like, you have kids that you can have 20 hours a week? That's unheard of. That's ridiculous. Like, I would kill to have 20 hours a week with any of my kids, even my littles, like the three, four, five-year-olds. Um, so with that... Um, our state has done, we have what's called the Katie Beckett waiver um, with Medicaid. And basically the Katie Beckett waiver has stated that within a certain, there's a, there's a list of diagnoses, but if you have those diagnoses, no matter the family's income, that child qualifies for Medicaid. So they can access Medicaid paid services, which we are. Um, so that has increased access quite a bit. And then the state bases the hours on developmental testing and kind of where the child is or the adolescent is in regards to where they quote unquote should be. Right. Um, or where age, age uh, peers, age equal peers would be. Right. Um, so a lot of our kids qualify for 30 plus hours a week. So in other places, are a lot of those services supposed to be given to them in school? Yes. Gotcha. So once okay. they go to school, the services ideally are supposed to be provided in school. There's not a lot of community 
support and so there is no pocketed money for like this is the services in school for medicaid this is as far as i'm aware no but i'm also not an expert in their state policies right no and i totally get that but in idaho it seems like there is definitely a difference we have people move to idaho specifically for the access their children can get to services that's that's very interesting yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to go ahead and switch a little bit here and kind of look at the connections and patterns that might of be course. taking place. Happily. Um, have you ever experienced a connection between a family's socioeconomic status and specific behaviors of either the child or the parents? I would say yes. Um, there are patterns that tend to develop. Um, of course, there's always outliers. <laughs> Um, when you're working with behavior, very little is cut and dried. Right. So like I can describe behavior with an ABC <laughs> contingency, um, but I can describe patterns. And that's so, what I was just going to ask if there right. were any patterns. So I've seen patterns both coming from the family system and the child. Um, high people that tend to fall in the higher SES patterns or higher SES categories tend to show more entitled behavior patterns, both with the parents and the children. And then lower SES, like families that fall in the lower SES categories often tend to, the children tend to show behaviors connected to um, attention seeking functions. Okay. So it's in some ways it's easier to talk about behaviors in this sense as the function of the behavior, um, especially for the lower SES families. Gotcha. So. so what behaviors seem to be most prominent? So our higher SES families tend to almost see us as babysitting sometimes. <laughs> As much as I hate to say that. um, (laughs) But it's true. It is. (laughs) So they tend to be our ones that um, will have last minute schedule changes and will have last minute, um, oh, can you drop off here? Oh, can you drop off there? Oh, I'm going to be 20 minutes late. Um, Less regard for us as a professional. So it's almost that sense of entitlement. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, our lower SES families, we tend to see a lot of attention seeking behaviors from the children. Okay. Um, especially in families where the parents have multiple jobs, which makes sense because if the parents have multiple jobs, then what's left for the kids when or parents possibly multiple kids or multiple kids. Yeah. Or both or both. Right. Um, what's left for the kids when they get home, especially for our higher behavior kiddos. That's often the case. So our more aggressive kiddos, often it's attention seeking. Um, If they're a lower SES family and a higher like aggressive behavior pattern, it's often, not always, but often attention seeking behavior. That makes sense. So do parents with low status seem to be more hands-on concerning treatment? Or do you find that they are more like, oh, you just take care of it? So in my experience, I've, in my six years at the agency, I I didn't even try to count 
in prepping for this, how many clients, <laughs> how many individual clients I've had. I've worked with a lot of the clients that our center has on their caseload and has had over the six years. Um, and in my experience personally, it's more de- it's more dependent on family culture than on their SES. Um, you can have high SES families that are really invested and really hands-on and want to know how to help their kids. Um, you can also have high SES families that are just like, deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Take them off my hands, deal with it. And not to say they don't love their kids because they right. do, but they can't be bothered with the behaviors. I've had low SES families that are really hands-on and really they, they want to learn. They want to know. They want to know how to better help their kids. I've also had low SES families that are just deal with it. Just, <laughs> just fix it's the behavior, deal with it. I don't have the energy. Right. So in my experience, it's been more family culture than SES based on how invested and involved the family structure is in the child's services. It's really interesting. So does one way feel more beneficial for the child? I would say as long as the, if we look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, as long as the child's needs are met, not really. Right. Um, I mean, obviously if you get below that where the needs are not met, then yes, that's detrimental. Right. If the, if the parent doesn't have enough money to keep adequate food on the table or is getting their kiddo up at 3 a.m. to get them to a child care provider so that they can get them to school because the parent has to go to work, thus interrupting the child's sleep. Like, that's detrimental. Right. But at the same time, it's, I haven't, I've seen families on both sides of the spectrum that genuinely love their kids and are doing everything in their, absolutely everything that they can to get their child the best, best possible outcome they can. Right. I've also seen families on both ends of the spectrum that are, that not necessarily that they don't love their child, but they almost see their child's struggles as an annoyance. Right. For lack of a better term. And sometimes as a parent, it's really hard because all right. you want to do is solve it. Right. And you know that you just can't snap your fingers and solve right. it. That this is going to take time, but you can't, you don't know how to do that. You don't have those tools. Exactly. And there's been very, very few parents that I have genuinely struggled with as a practitioner, as a behavioral therapist, individually. Right. Um, I would say most parents are doing the absolute best they can with the resources they have. However, a lot of parents don't know how to best do that for the benefit of their child. So those parents that you have struggled with, do they seem to have kind of the same traits? Yeah. <laughs> I would say the question. outlier. Um, there, there was an outlier that I worked with that was a CPS that turned into a CPS case. Um, and that's Child Protective Services. Yes, okay. Child Protective Services. Um, and I really struggled with that. <laughs> that's fair. Um, and then I've had an outlier that just was extremely 
checked out for lack of a better term. Right. Um, she was a very young mom with a very high need behaviorally child and didn't have the tools and didn't have the support system to really handle that in the best, most productive way possible. And that's difficult as an interventionalist because you build these relationships with these childs. Not not that you're, you're the parent. Right. But you have a real relationship with them. Yes. So if something like, let's say, CPS gets involved, how can you not have some sort of emotional state? I spent a lot of time at the gym with that kiddo, <laughs> just trying to work it out because obviously I'm like... I'm very limited as to what I can say with HIPAA and right. with yes, absolutely. privacy laws and all yes. of that, as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really, with that particular kiddo, I really, really struggled because they continued services through, like, I, I worked with them before they went into a CPS case, um, and then I continued with them through the CPS case. I actually ended up having to terminate services not not with the center, but I had to pull myself off of the case for mental health reasons. Right. When they ended up going back to the situation they right. had been in before. And we'll get more into that. With, we yeah. have a self-care section that we'll talk about. Yes. But so I, I really struggled with that, but I... I right. I yeah. think that there is something that you that people really don't understand is that it's not just the self-care when we get into that section about... The, the child, it's also the self-care involved yes. with the yes. interventionalist. I mean, there's a lot that you put in of yourself I've into had, the situation. My caseload has been up to eight kids at one time. And I do have, I'm a parent myself. So I have my daughter and then, you know, moms right. tend to have oh, the yeah. mama bear instinct. <laughs> and I will go mama bear for mine, but I will also go mama bear for my kids on my caseload. Like, right. It's it's one of those things that makes the job hard, but also so rewarding. Right. Like okay. I I have those relationships, and I oh I adore those kids. Well, and we'll definitely get back into that. Yes. So, but for right now, let's go ahead and switch over to see if there's any sort of connection or correlation, of course, between um, these situations and the race, ethnicity, culture, and status themselves. Okay. Of the the children that are right. involved. So, have you noticed a pattern concerning race, rate, maybe I could talk, race or ethnicity, and low socioeconomic status? So, in our area, we do have a very low level of diversity. Yeah. Um, with that being said, I have worked with um, a fairly diverse range of kiddos. Um, my case, my current caseload has, I have a kiddo who's of um, mixed descent from African-American and Caucasian, um, a Hispanic kiddo, a um, kiddo of mixed origin, Hispanic and Caucasian. Yeah, so that's current caseload diversity. And then past caseload, I've also had multiple kiddos of Middle Eastern di- Middle Eastern descent um, and ethnicity. And I had one kiddo who was uh, Pacific Islander. Um, with that, I haven't noticed as much specific to race. Okay. Um, but again, it goes back to culture. Right. That so when you look at how cultures 
you can look at cultural interactions and how they decide to, as a culture, form relationships, interact with others, things like that. That can definitely play a part. Um, One part that you had said earlier before the podcast is you were talking about, and I didn't put it in here, religion. Mm -hmm. Religion is a big, big thing here locally. Um, We actually have a very high percentage of, well, we've got a large number of different Christian tradition denominations. Right. Um, And we have a large group of people that subscribe to the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Yes. Um, And I've seen both the, I would say, like, the ideal and the non-ideal for that. Um, But the greatest experience I've seen has been in the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Really? Yes. So I've had families that are high SES that have quite a bit of support and have talked about the, the community and the support is why they've chosen that religious tradition. Um, I've also had families that lower SES, lower support, have not reached out to the community as much, but talk about community as a very high impact in their family. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also had families from Church of Latter-day Saints that very much personify what I think a lot of people think of, of the male-dominated Um, very patriarchal, very women are subservient. And I think that goes into a lot of culture though, because a lot of like Middle Eastern, Hispanic culture, they all But I've seen that a lot in the Caucasian population. I've seen that whole range in the Caucasian population. Um, In the Middle Eastern population locally that I've worked with on my caseload, They've been extremely supportive of their kiddos. They've been extremely supportive of any services, very welcoming of staff. Do you find that it's the same with male children as it is with female? No. No. Okay. Um, A lot of our, I would say regardless of SES, race, religion, a lot of our um, male presenting clients tend to view women as more subservient. Gotcha. So there is a definite gender gap. There is. Okay. There is. And it doesn't help that in the field itself as staff, there's a very definite gender gap. <laughs> um, we have two male staff at the center right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I think we only have two right now. Um, which makes it hard because there are families that have male children that are older that they want a male staff. Right. Um, usually with female presenting children, younger parents want female staff and then male children. It often parents don't mind as much, which makes sense with the political climate of the day and concerns Justified concerns from a whole range of different reasons. 
for lack of a better term, because that is a whole nother podcast we could get into. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Oh, gender. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you find with what you've seen thus far that um, behaviors kind of go into any of that? Are there specific behaviors that present themselves? Um, I would, for SES or religion or race, or is there any specific? Well, just with the diversity in general, um, like you said before, we could go right. into gender. I mean, that right. would be a totally new podcast. Yeah. That but would be- I mean, with the diversity and behavioral correlation. I think it more depends on the family system. Okay. Um, so my kiddo that I worked with, that was um, African-American his mother was Caucasian and it was a single parent home. So that's a much different situation than if you had an African-American kiddo from a, both parents are African-American, very involved in the community. Um, So it, it really takes getting to know the kiddo and the family and what they're comfortable with. Obviously if there's like religious or dietary or whatever, we respect that. Mm-hmm. Um, so does that lack of a parent, I mean, have you noticed that those single parent families, and that's, that's a really interesting yeah. thing to ask is the single parent families, whether they are single mom, single dad, mm-hmm. um, or if it's grandparent or some sort of other outside right. person, raising right. the kiddo, do you notice that there are more behaviors present with, with those specific families? I would say if in CPS cases, I would say yes, if the child has been removed, but that's trauma response, um, which makes sense. I would say kids pick up on a lot more than most adults give them credit for. And a lot more of our kiddos have trauma responses than I think a lot of people realize. Yes. Um, Kiddos are observant. <laughs> we've had we've had kiddos that have had very like their parents are separated and they've had very amicable divorce divorces or separations and have fared very well. Um we've also had kiddos that have had very rough right. separations, like the parents have had very rough separations, and it's very obvious. Um a lot of our kiddos have trauma responses and it's again, it's getting to know the kiddo. It's individualized care. It's individualizing the goals and the activities and the, you know, what the ideal outcome is for that child to the child, to the family. And it takes getting to know the environment they're in. And a lot of those, those scenarios are welfare. Yes. 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 And actually, let's go ahead and move that into our next section, sure. because I know a lot of welfare families are obviously low socioeconomic families right. because they just they don't have the means right. to, to further themselves any other way. Well, um, and in, in Idaho, again, we have the Katie Becker waiver. So yes. we talk about welfare families. A lot of places, they think Medicaid, they think state supported care. Again, in Idaho, our state provided care is more generalized. Right. But if it's a family that relies on welfare checks for more than just their child's one-on-one care, then yes, 100%. 
And again, it could be another podcast, but I think that let's say single mother related households probably are able to receive more welfare funding than let's say single fathers because probably yes because you you look at like our programs our food stamps which both mm-hmm. but you yeah. also have WIC which is WIC right. infant and children which right. I don't know a lot of single that are able to kind of get on that same train and it, I would say the single fathers that I've worked with because I've had a couple kiddos actually one of my kiddos right now is a single father situation they almost have more family support than a lot of the single mother Which situations. is really interesting. So, it is. So single moms actually need to rely on more, more state-based funding. Right. And the fathers have more family. And I'm, I'm not sure why that is. That's not my no, but kind that's of... A, that's but an interesting thing to think about. In my, in my experience with the cases I've worked with, that's been the scenario. That is very, very interesting. So we'll go ahead and look at the, the self-care then. Mm-hmm. Um, so has poor hygiene or the inability to provide food and toiletries um, from the lower socioeconomic families um, during the day, have, has that ever affected yes. a child's behavior? Yes. <laughs> I didn't yes. think that was a question. <laughs> um, often we see it with sleep and with food. Um, hygiene, not as much until they're until the kid is a little bit older and peers start noticing. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and yes, hygiene, things like that can be cause for a neglect situation, obviously. Um, but it has to get really bad before it's considered right. a neglect situation past the point where peers are noticing. Right. Um, well, I know a lot, like, like with my son, as an example, um, his isn't necessarily that he doesn't have the means, right? His is that he doesn't have the understanding, right? So he doesn't realize, Ooh, I stink. I should probably take a shower. And then if you have a family that we have a a family that is, they're not on my current caseload at the center, but we do have a family that has six kids. Yeah. And only one of them is special needs. Yeah. Diagnosed special needs. And there have been weeks where he's showered once a week. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's rough. It is. And it it impacts how he interacts with his peers. Yeah. Um, Does it... He doesn't necessarily realize. So I would say for hygiene, it's less... About the kiddo realizing and more the peer interaction. Exactly. Yeah. When you're talking about sleep, that is massive. Um, if our kiddos are not getting enough sleep, I have a, oh, I have a, a second grader that I work with right now that almost every day I have him, he takes a two hour nap in the afternoon because in order for dad to work and in order for dad to pay the bills, it's actually a single father as well. Those kids are getting, him and his older brother are getting up at like 4 a.m. to go to um, their grandparents' house. Right. And they get up and they go to grandparents' house and then they try to fall asleep again and then they go to school and they're just exhausted. Right. And when kids are, I mean, when any human is exhausted, their <laughs> behavior changes. Yeah. Um, for things like food, we see it more at the center. I don't know if this is the same with staff who work independently in the community, but 
for our families that come to the center. We see it less in having enough to eat and more in having enough varied things to eat. Right. So you might see a kid coming with a Nutella and marshmallow sandwich. And it's all sugar. It's all sugar. And donuts and goldfish. Oh, and there's there's nothing else in the sandwich. And right. there's nothing else in the lunch. And that's going to impact their behavior because that's going to last in their system differently than like a ham and cheese sandwich and some veggies and some fruit and maybe some cookies. Cause right. they're kids. We and don't what? want, we don't want them to not have sweets and not have the, the yummy things, but right. people need a balanced diet. So we see it less in not having enough to eat and more not having a balanced variation of or what about those kiddos? I know that there is a definite correlation. Well, and I know this firsthand with my child, but that there is a definite correlation between like autism and celiac disease. Yes. And so you have these kiddos that have these special dietary needs. Yes. And if they're not being met. And those are more expensive. Right. So that socioeconomic, that low status. Right. No matter the welfare funding or let's it's say food enough. stamps. Right, it's not going to be enough. And in Idaho, there's a very strict cutoff. And that so affects sleep as well. It impacts sleep. Yeah. It impacts, I mean, it impacts so much. Um, but in Idaho, if you make even $10 over the minimum, like, I'm not going to lie, my husband and I were on food stamps while we were in college, and our daughter was two, three years old. Like, she was 10 months old when we started college. So we we had the child care we had the food stamps. We had all of that. Oh, yeah. And I started working and we made, I want to. I don't even want to say we made $100 over the minimum. And we went from $400 a month in food stamps to nothing. Right. Yeah. There's no taper off. No. So it, I mean, and that can be a whole nother podcast of <laughs> economical incentive to actually start working again. Because right. we had to sit down and have a very serious conversation of, if I don't make enough at my job to cover that deficit, is it worth me working? Right. And I, I hated that conversation, <laughs> you know, cause we were, we were doing, I mean, we were both in school full time, young parents, mm -hmm. like just trying to make ends meet. And well, the, just the childcare, I mean, yeah. childcare oh, is so expensive. expensive. And I totally hear you. I had, because I have two kiddos. Yeah. And one of which is special needs. Yeah. And it is an upcharge if yeah. you have a child with special needs and to put them in a daycare. A daycare that will even take them. Right. Like the, and so all that money, all that yeah. money that I'd be making on my side would go directly to childcare. Yeah. So all of those, you know, extras that you were getting from the state are negated. Exactly. Because it's just, it's not enough. You're actually receiving more when you get that that state yeah, funding, hundred percent, then all of the reasons to get off exactly the state funding. Oh, absolutely. And it's and not to say that it's it's a bad thing because I think it's awesome for people who need it. I I do think there probably needs to be some adjustment to it, like a taper off or right. something like that. Um, but that's that's a totally different. <laughs> right. No, and it's, it's totally worth talking about because it all goes into everything that that behavioral inter interventionalists have to deal with. Right. Because there is so much more than just, oh, this child just has behavior. Yeah. There's reasons behind it. 
It can and be, that I mean, whole idea of no sleep, that whole idea of maybe not having the right foods to eat, right. that whole idea of all of it, um, even the child care. I mean, if you have a child who is in a bad situation, yeah. they're going to react because that relationship 100%. with whatever adult they have is not working. Right. And relationship, I'm sorry, I this I'm just going to say it, is 98%. Yes of a child's ability to be able to help their behaviors. Yes. You have to have a relationship with you that child. You have to build a rapport. Oh my gosh. You have I mean, to. the first, I mean, I mean, it depends on how often, like I have a kiddo that I work with three days a week. I have a kiddo that I work with one day a week. And so the amount of time to build a good rapport and a good therapeutic relationship where the kiddo can trust that a, I'm going to give reinforcement when I say I'm going to give it. B, they can trust that I have their best interest at heart mm-hmm. and see if I have to do something to help adjust their behavior. Let's say if they're being unsafe to help them be safe, that I'm not angry or I'm not going to hurt them or I'm not going to abandon them. Right. Like it takes time and it's hard and it's not like there's any sort of social hierarchy for right. your bis and abas like there is like let's right. say teachers right. teachers automatically are given a role yeah of a lot of, of people even in idaho teachers don't really know what we do <laughs> yeah um doctors don't really know what we do we we kind of fit in this weird in between which was right. really highlighted with covid um, and we'll get into that too. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's a weird in between where it, we kind of don't fit anywhere. And so how does the kid relate to us? How does the right. kid, like if we're picking a kiddo up from school and their friends see us, who are we to the kiddo? Right. And I love that you talked about transportation because we're going to talk mm. about that as yes. well. Yes. So do you find that you are transporting the child more for families with low socioeconomic status? I would say I tend to transport more for families that are that believe they're entitled to our services. Which I regardless find... of SES, because we've I've, <laughs> I've worked with kiddos that their families are very low SES that feel very entitled to our services, and I've worked with kiddos with very high SES that feel they're entitled to our services. So it's which is a really interesting statistic because yes. if you think about it, like from an outsider's perspective, like yeah. me. That would not have been my first go-to. I would think that it would actually be low SES right. that would require those services more. But the more that you you talk about it and the more that you see this, yeah. this, this feeling of entitlement in the U.S., and we'll yeah. say in Idaho, but in yeah. the U.S. in general, that, yeah, they're more of a, you do it. I would say our families with lower SES tend to be better about communicating a, a set schedule. Do you think there's guilt involved in that? Yes. That they actually believe that they feel guilty that yes. they, they need the, that help? Yes. But they tend to be better about saying, hey, I work these days. These are the days I need you to transport. Or just being consistent with it. Our higher SES families tend to be the ones that tend to be less consistent with transportation. That makes And I've ended up having to transport more. <laughs> Because of that. Okay. So let's go ahead. Now that we've talked about the self-care of the child and the adolescent. 
Um, what about, let's get back to the self-care of the providers. Happily. Because I, I seriously, I don't think people even understand that toll, that, that part of, of yourselves that you put in to the whole situation. Um, so how, 100%. how do you feel about the self-care of practitioners? I mean, how do you feel? And this is going to be a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> how do you feel about, do you guys get the services that you need to deal with not only the physical and economic side of it, um, like being paid, right. what you think practitioners should be made, paid, um, but also just that, that mental side of it. I mean, does the state have your back? I mean, no. how do you feel about the whole thing? Um, I would say the state, I appreciate that they get as many hours for our kiddos as they can. I do. I just had a kiddo who tested out of his IEP that I've worked with intensively for a year and a half. And that is massive for him. He was a high behavior, high aggression kiddo. And he is like, I am beyond proud of him. But the support I had was based on my center and not on the state. I have a amazing supervision team behind me supporting me. They do what they can with pay, but Idaho's not a transportation paid state. So we are paying our own gas. Um, there's no, the state doesn't require any, like, Yes, we can qualify for healthcare based on the size of the business, but it's not anything extra. There's no support for providers beyond what's mandated by law for all companies. Again, I am very lucky with the supervision team that I have, right. and I, I'm very aware of how lucky I am that I can go into my bosses and be like, Hey, this is the situation. This is what I'm dealing with. Here's what this parent said. Here's what happened today. And they support me, but they can only do what they can do. Right. Right. Um, so I think if you have amazing supervisors, I think it's a lot different than if you don't. But I wouldn't say that the state has a big part of that. Gotcha. And we'll get we'll get back into that in the yeah. final thoughts. Yeah. I definitely want you to leave us with the final thought of how you feel about that. <laughs> but um, let's go ahead and switch. And we're going to talk about, because we have all lived through a pandemic now. Well, yes. Oh, the ones that are still here <laughs> have right. all lived right. through a pandemic now. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about that COVID influence because okay. I think that that's huge. I mean, I, think it is I know from an educator side yes. where I am that yes. there is a giant influence due to COVID. So have you noticed a behavioral change yes. in these children and adolescents since COVID-19? I would say for the kiddos who should have been in middle school and didn't have some of that middle school experience, there's a immaturity there of not understanding how to interact with peers. I would say for the kiddos who normally would be in daycare um, and have been home because of COVID. Um, again, there's a lack of awareness of peers. Um, and 
for our kiddos that should have been in like kindergarten, first grade, not only is there a behavioral difference where they're almost more like preschoolers, um, behaviorally, there's also the academic mm-hmm. impact. Not to say that the other grade levels don't have an academic oh, impact. Oh, there's a huge gap. But I would say for them, especially with those foundational skills, yeah, that's a huge thing. So we, yes, I work in behaviors. Yes, it is a behavior-focused service. But within behaviors, we can work on, we can do a lot of activities. There's a lot of activities we can do. There's, I mean, the sky's the limit. I'm, I'm going to do a face mask with a kiddo right. next week because he's learning to wash his face. And a face mask is an easy visual way to see if you've gotten everything off. Like if you've washed your whole face. Yeah. I can do math with a kiddo. I can do reading. I can do cooking I can do games I can do community access I can do sky's the limit right but for those kiddos that have really missed a lot of those foundational skills they're the ones I see struggling the most yeah no that makes total sense or the ones going straight into high school functionally from elementary school but that's more of a maturity thing yes it is that's lack that's less of a behavioral deficit and more right. of a socialization deficit. A socialization and an academic. Yes. An academic gap. Yeah, but no. Which you guys should not have to. But we do. I know. <laughs> In that beautiful rainbow world. Right. In a <laughs> perfect world, we wouldn't have to deal with that. No, but you shouldn't have to deal with that. In reality, I deal with everything from... I've had kiddos that I'm working on emerges, emerging vocal behavior. I'm working on... I've worked on potty training with an eighth grader. Yeah. I've worked on feeding skills across the age range. Communication is a huge one. We see that with most of our kiddos. Communication, following directions, transitioning from less preferred or from more preferred to less preferred activities. And you would say, is there not really an SES effect with that? I would say with, Almost all of our kiddos, those are pretty normal. The following directions, communicating your wants and needs, um, transitions. Those are three things that I would say almost all of our kiddos really tend to struggle with. Again, tend to. There are outliers. There are kiddos that do really well in one area or not in another. Um, But generally, those are goals that most of our kiddos have, regardless of SES, religion, race, family situation, anything. That makes sense. So what about um, parent involvement since COVID? Have you seen a change? Not really. No, it's pretty much the same. Um, Our families that were maybe our lower SES families that tend to work multiple jobs that's still a thing that's happening. Yes. Those jobs may have changed to be like DoorDash, Uber Eats, things like that, that sometimes they can take their kids along with, but not usually, they usually choose not to in my experience. Um, but I haven't seen a huge difference in behavior based on those factors post COVID. All right. Well, sweet. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. And do you have any final thoughts about that, that sort of impact that SES might have on those behaviors in children? 
In Idaho. In Idaho. <laughs> um, I think it would be really interesting to look at if there was a way to measure family culture based on SES, because I think family culture impacts children's behaviors more than maybe the SES. Not that SES doesn't, again, if we're fulfilling a child's basic needs, if we've met the Maslow's basic hierarchy of needs, that's the group I'm talking about. Obviously, if you're not meeting those, that's a different situation. Well, and it is kind of interesting because, again, that goes back to that sociological issue of those needs being met on a different level for those cultures. Right. Because not every culture is going to have the same availability. Exactly. So I think that kind of goes into all of it. Yeah. Um, It's really interesting to look at how everything interconnects. Right. And I think that's what we look at when we look at SES because there is a definite gap between different cultures and their availability to receive certain economic funding and what they're able to, in return, the lives that they're able to live because of that. Yeah. Um, but I just want to thank you all for joining Sarah and me today. And I definitely want to thank you, Sarah. Of course. Thank you for life. having me. I love us talking about this stuff. It's always fascinating. It is. It's um, <laughs> and um, thank you for all of the light you shed on any sort of correlation between socioeconomic status and behavior issues in children and adolescents in Idaho. Um, I personally feel like I've learned a lot. I always do when we talk. <laughs> Um, and we have been able to look at all of this through a fantastic sociological imagination lens. And I think that's, that's basically what we all need to do, um, and shed light on more issues that are prominent, uh, more prominent than people realize. So thank you again. And I hope uh, we talk soon and I will see you all later. Thanks. Bye. Bye.